What an awesome day this is uh, to be in God's house together and to, to celebrate all that God has done among us. I was reading in Psalm 77 recently, and I'll share just a couple of verses with you. It says, then I recall all that, all that you have done, O Lord. I remember your wonderful deeds of long ago. They are constantly in my thoughts. I cannot stop thinking about your mighty works. O God, your ways are holy. Is there any God as mighty as you? You are the God of great wonders. You demonstrate your awesome power among the nations. By your strong arm, you redeemed your people. You know, in all that we do today, we are inviting uh, you to keep in mind the, the God that we serve. Uh, to remember the God who works wonders, the God who um, uh, uh, redeems his people, redeems you and me, the God who is holy, uh, the God who, who has no equal. I know that there are a lot of congregations, <clears throat> around United Methodism at least, that don't get to experience in the course of a year um, a lot of the things that we get to share as a congregation here at Redeemer, moments like this with baptisms and confirmation. Um, so today I just invite us to celebrate all that God is doing and all that God has done and all that God is yet to do as, uh, as we serve uh, God in this community. Let's pray together, shall we? God, we enter into this time of worship today with great joy for you grant us acceptance and you lift us up with a vision of what is yet to be. So hear our prayers, hear our praises as we wait in anticipation for the power of your Holy Spirit to just settle within us. Bless this day and all that we offer to you in Jesus' name, amen. In two days, United Methodists from all over the world will gather in Portland, Oregon for the General Conference of the United Methodist Church. Now, you may not know a lot about the United Methodist Church, but every four years, United Methodists from all over the globe gather to do the business of the church. There are a lot of questions to be answered again this time around. There are lots of serious challenges facing the church that threatens the church. We are the second largest Protestant denomination in the country but we are not alone in facing many of the challenges that are before the church worldwide. One prominent United Methodist pastor stated it this way, United Methodism is drifting without strong leadership on the national level. Policies are being planned, opinions are being espoused, monies are being spent for some causes which do not have the support of a great many United Methodists and yet we seem helpless to do anything about it. As a result, thousands of our members drop out each year or change denominations because of frustration. Now, I don't know if that's altogether true. Uh, the church has some very capable leadership, and in some parts of the country, it's doing quite well, despite the fact that mainline denominations as a whole are struggling nationwide, and that includes Presbyterians and the Episcopal Church and Lutherans and all of us. What we do know is that despite the fact that Redeemer here is healthy and vital and effectively engaged in the community, there are a lot of local churches that are not. And overall, we're seeing numerical declines in many churches around the country. It seems that the larger mainline churches are caught up in more of the struggles uh, around some of the leading social issues of the day 
than many of the more conservative church groups. For more than 40 years, we've been addressing some important issues like, is the Bible God's inspired word? Is it still authoritative for uh, the church's beliefs and practice? Will we go along with the culture regarding issues of human sexuality and same-sex marriage, which, uh, with the idea that if we do, the church will become more relevant to secular people? Will some of our bishops excuse or even encourage open opposition to some of the church's historic teachings, which happened four years ago? Or will they be fair arbiters as we seek the mind of Christ? Can we continue to be a church that tries to be all things to all people and politically correct and still expect to experience the blessing of God? Will faithful United Methodists remain within a conflicted and sometimes dysfunctional church and fight for its renewal? Now, it is not my intent this morning to send any of you running for the exits. Uh, or leaving the great church that we love. All of the mainline churches and many of more evangelical churches in this country than before are today experiencing similar issues and challenges. It's part of the 21st century culture in which we live. And my hope is that I will have motivated you, if nothing more, but to pray for the United Methodist Church and for the Church of Jesus Christ as a whole. Somewhere back in the mid-90s, I think it was 1996, I read an article that at the time caught my attention, and it was written by a church consultant who was looking ahead at changes that were taking place in the church and in the world, and he was offering a forecast of the future. And the article was entitled, What Will Tomorrow Bring? The author looked ahead to the year 2017, now remember, this is 1996. He's looking ahead 20 years to uh, 2017, and he's asking the question, where will the worshipers born after 1955 be going to church in 20 years? Now, many of you were born after 1955. I can't raise my hand, but how many of you can say I was born after 1955? Okay, there's a lot of you, okay? So where will the worshipers born after 1955 be worshiping 20 years from now? Let me share with you some of his thinking and then we'll talk about where we are today. Since we've just now um, beginning to arrive close to that 20 year mark. First he says, the safest prediction is that a disproportionately large number of people born after 1955 will be found in new congregations. Congregations organized since 1990. New churches are generally organized at least initially to reach younger generations of people, people not actively involved in the life of any worshiping community. But then he says that along about year seven or eight or nine, the primary focus of even a new church start gradually begins to shift to taking care of its own members. By year 25, what was once a new church created to reach unchurched people frequently is now concentrating most of its time, most of its efforts on taking care of its own members. And they have lost the vision uh, for those who are outside of the church. Secondly, he says, another safe prediction is that the generations born after 1955 will be found in disproportionately large numbers in congregations that have at least two or three exceptionally high quality 
extremely attractive and well-organized entry points, which are designed in response to the needs of individuals and families. Now that might be things like uh, a great children's ministry, it might be good youth ministry, it might be a preschool, it might be a promise to young families that the church will be there for them to help them raise their kids, it might be offering classes to young parents, uh, it might be ch uh, the church offering help to families uh, to enrich their marriages, uh, specialized youth programs for teens uh, in blended families, opportunities for young adults uh, that, so that we can provide support and service opportunities for this very mobile segment of our population. Um, but all of those options need to be high caliber in order to reach new and younger generations. Third, he says, another reasonably safe prediction is that at least half of all regular churchgoers born after 1955 will be found in congregations that enjoy substantial discretionary resources. And he's talking primarily financial. This is primarily true, he says, in Protestant denominations. These are churches that have a high threshold for membership. They average or exceed 350 a week in worship and project relatively high expectations of people in terms of involvement in ministry. These are churches that place a high priority on the ministry of the Holy Spirit in a person's life and unequivocally affirm the historical facts of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. Discipleship and adult education, he says, will be a high priority in these churches. In a high-impact church, the number of people involved in classes and small groups for teaching and learning will be about 80% of the worshiping attendance. The ministry staff of the church are not the doers of the church's ministry, but serve as team leaders to recruit, train, deploy, lay volunteers into ministry. The church will also offer a choice for people between traditional and non-traditional worship, and many will offer two concurrent worship services on Sunday morning. Video projection, he this is back 1996. Video projection, not print media, will be the primary means of communication, both during the worship service and to this age group outside uh, of the service as well. The staff will include at least one full-time trained seminary ordained pastor for every 500 to 800 people in worship, and the average tenure of pastors will exceed 12 years in a highly successful church. The other staff will be lay specialists, some full-time and some part-time. He says growing churches will need at least three acres of land for every 100 in worship. We currently have about 12 acres. We average close to 500 in worship, so we're a little bit under that goal. Electronic music and a band will be more common than the traditional organ and acoustical sound. Uh, worshipers will come from many different cultural backgrounds, not just European ancestry, and at least one-fourth of all worshipers will have two or three grandparents who were raised in the Roman Catholic tradition. On a typical weekend, at least half of those in worship will travel at least four miles from their house to the church, and for at least one-half of the worshipers, the majority of their friends in their social network will come from people with inside the church. Now he goes on and lists several other characteristics that will dominate the church in the year 2017. But here's the bottom line. 
larger churches that draw people from beyond their local communities and offer an attractive number of high-quality ministries will get over half of the younger churchgoers in 2017. Smaller churches are still going to be around, but they will attract less than 30% of all Protestant worshipers on a weekend. Then the fourth prediction he makes is that uh, by 2017, the ministry of the laity in growing in healthy churches will be the norm, not the exception. It will be lay people, not clergy, who will be the primary leaders of fellowship, worship, Bible study, prayer, caring for people in the congregation, and the missional outreach. The paid staff will run the day-to-day operations of the church while the congregation is engaged in doing most of the ministry. The means that we, this means that we don't need large administrative structures like we used to have in churches and lots of monthly meetings. Instead, short-term ministry teams that have a single purpose and a task will be the order of the day. Do you see how this changes the way we've always done church? The role of the paid staff changes from doing ministry to challenging enlisting, training, deploying, nurturing, supporting lay volunteers. The old model that's still alive and well in most churches is that the pastor does it all. They make the hospital calls, they visit all the homebound, they do all the administrative work at the church. The new model calls for trained volunteers who will share the story of their own life and experience um, out in the community. We have a a friendship ministry here that I'm really uh, excited about because we have 20 or 30 folks who are trained to be uh, visitors in our nursing homes, in our, with some of our homebound uh, church family, with making hospital calls. They're doing a lot of that already. Uh, there's another model of volunteer couples who have become mentors for others who are looking at marriage. There's uh, people on the brink of divorce that, that might look uh, at the church and find a, a couple who will mentor them uh, through that process or to advise them in that process. The old model called for the pastor to lead worship almost exclusively. The new model calls for a team of trained volunteers to, to lead worship. The old model called for paid professionals to work with high school youth. The new model encourages older youth to serve as peer leaders. The old model called for the governing board of the church to be a permission withholding group. The new model calls for a smaller leadership team that will give new ministries a, a chance to be birthed, to try new things, to take risks, uh, to envision a future that will continue to impact the community around the church. So you may be sitting there thinking, why am I telling you all of this? Well, in part, to say that for people who long for the church to return, to the simpler days, and you can't believe how often I hear that in some churches that I uh, consult with. We, we long for those days back in the 50s and the 60s and maybe even in the 70s. If you long for that to be the church that you knew, you're gonna be disappointed. Life is more complicated now and the church environment more competitive today uh, than it even was in the last half of the 20th century. I get to work with churches all the time now that are really stuck in that bygone era. And they are trying to do church like we did church 50 or 60 years ago. 
Younger people especially are leaving traditional churches like that and finding new places to worship that are modern, that are culturally relevant, that, um, or they're not going to church anywhere. And the result is that many churches are aging up, many churches are closing because they refuse to change to meet the needs of a new generation. The desire to keep things simple has been replaced by this demand for more meaningful and high quality choices. And the price tag of that is greater complexity sometimes. In addition, the call for quality and choices and relevance is placing a premium on higher levels of competence among staff. Things like seniority and proper credentials are less influential than good character, high level of ability, deep Christian commitment, and skills at relationship building. You see, new generations of worshipers bring new expectations to the church. Younger generations are reshaping the life of the church in these early decades of the 21st century. And my point in sharing all of this with you today is to explain a little bit of why we do some of the things we do here at Redeemer. It's been a while since I've shared with you some of that kind of vision. It seemed like a good time to remind us all why we began to move in some new directions about 20 years ago. And as you can see from what I shared with you today, the consultant who predicted those trends 20 years ago wasn't too far off. Today we have a vibrant church that is making a difference in the lives of people who come and people in the community. We've made a lot of adjustments because we took the advice that we were hearing 20 years ago, which is why we're seeing lots of young families be part of Redeemer, children, youth, and many churches today are not. But all United Methodist churches are not the same. There continues to be some serious issues, yes, facing our denomination, one of them, the whole area of financial resources. And the second, uh, attracting new and younger people into the life of the church. You know, we just completed three weeks of a financial campaign. We do that every spring. We ended last week with our consecration Sunday. The results are not all in yet. But last year, you generously supported a budget in excess of a million dollars and funded, on top of that, tons of outreach in this community. See, many United Methodist churches are not as blessed as we've been. Many are on the verge of collapse because of financial unsustainability. From 2011 to 2014, the Michigan area uh, of United Methodism saw membership losses of over 8% a year. I firmly believe that if we don't reverse that trend in the next 15 years, we may not be able to. And again, mainline denominations are shrinking all over the country, in part due to the inability for, for a lot of churches to embrace the present and make changes that are necessary to grow. Actually, worship attendance is declining at a steady rate all over America. You know, as a kid, um, regular worship attendance for our family meant that we went to church Sunday morning, we went Sunday evening, and we went Wednesday evening to prayer service as well. Today, regular worship attendance is identified as one and sometimes two Sundays a month. Why? In part because we, we've let a lot of other things creep into our time and in our relationship with God. I want to read to you just a few verses from the New Testament book of Acts. It's in chapter 2, and this is about what happened to the believers in the first century church when they came together as the community of faith. 
It says, all the believers devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship and to sharing meals, including the Lord's Supper, and to prayer. The deep sense of awe came over all of them, and the apostles performed many miraculous signs and wonders, and all the believers met together in one place and shared everything they had. They sold their property and their possessions and shared the money with those in need. They worshiped together at the temple each day. They met in homes for the Lord's Supper. They shared their meals with great joy and generosity all the while praising God and enjoying the goodwill of all people. And each day the Lord added to their fellowship those who were being saved. You know, in the New Testament, the church means people, not buildings. The church lies at the heart of God's eternal purpose. God is not merely uh, here to save isolated individuals and and perpetuate our loneliness. God's purpose is to build a community of redeemed people for his glory. Our leadership team here is very concerned about the renewal of the church, and we're concerned about the biblical vision of what the church is intended to be. I'm excited every year when I see the number of young people who come to our confirmation classes and make a decision to follow Jesus with their lives. In the book of Acts, one of the distinguishing marks of a dynamic church is that people are learning and studying and devoting themselves to the teaching of God's word. There are a lot of other things that make a church vital and effective and things like passionate worship and extravagant generosity and radical hospitality and intentional faith development and risk-taking service, but all of those core practices begin with sitting at the feet of Jesus and learning. So here's what I'm gonna ask of you today. Three things, first, pray for the church, for this church and for our leaders and for our volunteers that we continue to be obedient to God and be in the place where God can bless our lives and continue to make us a blessing in this community. Secondly, I'm going to ask you to pray for the United Methodist Church and those who will be meeting in these next two weeks in Portland, Oregon, that God will continue to give us a vision to be the church that God called us to be from its earliest days on the American frontier. And then third, pray for the children and the young families and the youth of this congregation. Our present and our future is really tied to the faith development of the students, students like ones being confirmed today, kids who are in Sunday school, families who are stressed and stretched in so many directions. Pray that God will raise up new leaders and strong people of faith that will carry on God's work of building the kingdom in this place. The starting point for every church has to be the question, why? Why do we exist? And until we know what the church exists for, we have no foundation, we have no motivation, no direction, no unity, no purpose. The early church knew why they existed, and they were unified in that purpose, and Jesus enlists people not to a life of leisure, but to a life of service. And while each of us has a different task, we all have the same calling, and that is to communicate the good news of Jesus Christ to the people we meet. I hope that's true for all of us and continues to be true uh, for this congregation for years to come. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you are the head of the church. And today we bow down in humility before you. We thank you that it is your loving purpose to build a church and to build a people. And we thank you that you've given us this great privilege of being part of it. 
And we thank you that it's a worldwide, multicultural, multiracial, multinational community, and that one day we will stand before the throne of God in heaven, and there will be this great company that nobody can number from every nation, every tribe, every language that will worship you throughout eternity. Meanwhile, we pray for our churches here on earth that we may, be, that we may more closely reflect this wonderful idea that you have given to us in your word of how the church can be. So bless our fellowship, bless our worship, bless our service out into the world around us. We humbly pray not only for the good of this church, but for the good of our world and the glory of your great name. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen.